Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen on this 9th of February. All right, the headline lead this morning for uh, for our conversation is this. The AEU, that would be the Emiratis, by the way, the AEU has announced that it's going to allow some prominent foreigners to become Emirati citizens. So experts are explaining that this is an attempt by the country to um, build a post-oil world and to rebrand itself as the global multicultural hub that values diversity. So this first step is to actually uh, invite foreigners to become citizens of the AEU. And uh, let's just say they're starting with um, movie stars and tech giants, so that's what their uh, that's their big development plan here. They're going to, they want to grant AEU citizenship to investors and people with what are described as specialized talents, scientists, doctors, engineers, artists, authors, and their families. The new directive is to uh, designed to attract talent that would then contribute to the development of the AEU and raise its uh, well raise its image globally. So 90% of the AEU, AEU's residents are actually expats, um, which means people born outside of the AEU. And so we want to talk a little bit about citizenship, kings and kingdoms, because these offers are being made to people who have a lot of assets, a lot of wealth, a lot of influence. Uh, they only want a certain kind of people to come as naturalized citizens to their country. Uh, and so the first offers are likely to be made to um, and this is not surprising, Zuckerberg and Brad Pitt. Those are apparently the two people at the top of the Emiratis list of people who they would like to become Emiratis along with them. So let me remind you today as Christians, uh, regardless of your influence in the world, regardless of whether or not you are um, recognized in the world as a quote-unquote influencer, whether or not you have one of these high profiles or specialized talents, the offers made to you today in Jesus Christ to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And for those of you who are Christians, let me remind you, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me encourage you to be in the Word of God today as you are cultivating the mind of Christ on the matters which lie before us. That passage of Scripture is from 1 Peter chapter 2, but I would also direct you to Philippians chapter 3, Revelation 1 and 19. Get to know the King. Come to know uh, what it's like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, and then to live in the midst of the kingdoms of this world as a living demonstration of that King and the principles of His kingdom. 
Leading off this morning, uh, I've got a conversation planned with Michael Craven from the Colson Center. You hear Breakpoint here every single day during Mornings with Carmen. I know you love it, so thought it'd be fun to catch up with one of our friends from the Colson Center. So Michael Craven will be with me next. All right, joining me now, Michael Craven from the Colson Center. Michael, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, good morning. Great to be with you. Okay, I face a horrible temptation right now. I mean, I'm, I, have the, I face this horrible temptation to ask you about the etymology of your name. Like, how did your people end up being known as the Craven? <laughs> I mean, I'm so, I, uh, I, I, I apologize. I was unable to resist that temptation, but like, how how is it possible that your people like came to be known as those who were contemptible and lacking in courage. I don't know. Maybe it was sort of like uh, the uh, Johnny Cash strategy of naming your boy Sue. So <laughs> that's gonna, that's the story I'm going to go with. Uh, I had Carl Truman on um, a few weeks ago, and I was like, how did your family end up being the true man? Like, that is a, that's a high calling, man. All right, so moving on. Um, you had a really um, uh, interesting ministry experience in South Dallas, that's a part of your story. I'd love for you to share some of those experiences um, with our listeners before we get into a conversation about what you're doing at the Colson Center and particularly the Colson Fellows Program. Yeah, I got involved with a, uh, a ministry in South Dallas called Bridge Builders uh, back in 2013 through a dear friend of mine who was the founder of the ministry. And uh, initially to come alongside and consult with him on the establishment of what he then referred to as some social businesses, the idea being that they were going to start some businesses uh, whose purpose was to create jobs for people who were historically unemployable. Uh, Unfortunately, they were running these businesses under the nonprofit. They were running them like a nonprofit, and uh, to no one's surprise, they were achieving nonprofit um, so they weren't succeeding. So we we revisioned them and spun them off as a, a for-profit subsidiary and uh, had about five companies that we started. And we used these businesses to uh, bring people into um, an environment where we could not only provide them the ability to work themselves out of poverty, but also disciple them um, and, and really give them, and I say disciple them in a whole life way to, uh, to help them understand how to live in right relationship with reality, um, as well as live in right relationship with God, themselves, and others. And uh, while we were about six months into this enterprise, the uh, founder, my friend, uh, unfortunately passed away and uh, uh, due to a four-year battle with cancer that uh, he thought was in remission and uh, unfortunately came back. And uh, upon his death, the board approached me and asked me if I would take over, and uh, so I did. And I spent the next four years uh, really revisioning ministry to what we commonly refer to as the poor, uh, and really understanding poverty as it exists in the United States today, which is not like poverty that exists in the third world. It's not poverty that has existed throughout history um, it, it's not the same level of deprivation. It's more of a cultural poverty, a relational poverty. And uh, so we, we really shifted the whole ministry toward that of, of an urban missionary organization, believing that 
Um, ironically, this was the um, most hyper-engaged, unreached people group in America, probably. Hyper-engaged in the sense that the church was constantly going down there um, in this sort of transactional sense, you know, the the Thanksgiving and Christmas and and uh, participate in what I, I, I came to refer to as poverty tourism. Uh, but there was really never any effort to build up the body of Christ in these communities. And with that um, a- a effort, uh, you know, teach people how to live in obedience to Christ, how to how to achieve reconciliation with God, themselves, others, creation. And of course, included in this larger re- relationship of creation lies all these other activities such as vocation and personal responsibility and family and all of these things. And so we really worked hard to uh, correct these things. And that required us to point out some things um, in these communities that uh, that historically people had avoided pointing out. Um, such as the, uh, you know, the fatherlessness rate and out of wedlock birth rates and things like that and challenging people to uh, begin to, you know, live the way God would have them live. And this might have an impact on, on some of the effects that they were experiencing. So, um, and we saw tremendous uh, progress. Um, and, and, and I had such great respect for the people in this community that uh, when presented with the truth, which they were often, uh, was often veiled from them, kept from them, uh, they they were responsive and uh, were willing to take on the responsibility necessary to uh, work themselves out of their situations. So, Michael, um, if people want more information, they want no, they want to know more about the story um, of this revisioning and and how this took place. Is there is there somewhere that we can direct them um, in terms of learning more about what you did there and how it happened, or what God did there and how you participated in it? Yeah, I think I um, I have several articles on um, Breakpoint uh, that are uh, part of the uh, library there, talking about poverty and dealing with uh, with the uh, modern problem of poverty. Um, it, it is a complex problem, very very complex problem, and uh, thus requires a, a fairly complex response. And we uh, we don't like complex responses; we like the simple, right? No, that's exactly right. And um, it's also highly relational and it it in, it requires like all the it, total engagement. It's not, um, you know, it's not a one off drop, you know, drop off ministry. It's a it's real engagement over real time with real people. And so if you're listening today and you're saying to yourself, "Gosh, I really I I, I live in a community that clearly needs that. I'd like to know um, what that looks like. Check out what um, Michael Craven has posted at breakpoint.org. We're actually going to turn to one of those pieces here when we come back from a very brief break. Um, So if you go to breakpoint.org, the piece that we're going to be discussing next is the myth of race and why it's harmful. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Michael Craven, you can find him at colsonfellows.org. You can also find what he's writing at breakpoint.org. We're going to talk about a piece posted there called The Myth of Race and Why It's Harmful. Um, this piece starts out, Michael, with a little bit of a summary um, about the ministry that we just discussed in South Dallas. Um, but you you come to the place where you say in here that you came to, you just came to recognize um, that the racial narrative had been elevated over the gospel narrative. Can you talk a little bit about real racism 
um, real social conditions that, you know, that obviously continue to oppress um, people in particular communities in our culture and why conversations about race actually are sort of take us down the wrong track. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, when I when I took over Ridge Builders, it was about three months prior to the Ferguson riots, so uh, which was quickly followed by the events here in Dallas that uh, that led to the ambush and shooting of of several police officers, and and of course race loomed large in South Dallas, largely in this idea of of what I came to realize was was really victimhood as an ideology. And, uh, and, and let me distinguish between victimization as fact and victimization as an ideology. Victimization as facts, this is something that is of, of profound concern to the church, to the Christian, uh, and where we see injustice, we have a duty, a responsibility to intervene, to step up, and, and, and bring remedy to that point of injustice. But, but often what, what we see in the inner city, particularly in the Black community, is the, the embrace and the perpetuation of victimization as an ideology. Uh, there is a powerful grievance industry, particularly in, in Black communities, that, that foments this narrative that you are a victim, you are a victim, and this, this breeds a sense of entitlement and, and, and a lack of, of any responsibility for any aspect of your life including um, your responsibility for sin and your need for the gospel. Um, because the, the narrative is often one that argues, you know, you're not the one that needs the gospel. It's your oppressor that needs the gospel. Uh, you are innocent in a sense. And that's, that's you know, this is a major inhibition to the reception of the gospel. But um, it, it's also an inhibition to the progress of the human person made in the image of God. Uh, that, that, is, that is crippled by this idea that I am a victim and I can never rise above my situations. And when we do this, we are denying something that is essential to being human and to the Imago Dei, because being made in the image of God is, is, means that we are endowed with certain cast characteristics, not least of which is the ability to reason and to think and to make real choices that have real consequences. And that includes making choices that transcend our circumstances. We are not bound by our circumstances. We can make choices to defy our circumstances, to overcome our circumstances. And, and this is an important facility that the human being must possess uh, if, if they want to affect any sort of change in their life. Uh, God gives us this ability, but if this ability is stunted or thwarted, uh, that, that, that possibility diminishes. Um, and, and one of the problems that, that, that I saw is that we've, we've bought into this idea that personhood is, is somehow located in something other than being made in the image of God, such as physical characteristics like skin color. And if you go back to the 19th century, this, this idea really takes root with, with Darwinism and scientific racism. Um, which was really yet one more attempt in a fallen world to divide humanity over any and every means possible. Um, and for us as Christian, we have to, as Christians, we have to resist these efforts to divide us and work toward the unity of the human race, because there is but one race, it is the human race. Um, 
you know, even I think two years ago, uh, National Geographic had a cover story uh, basically laying out the scientific evidence that there is no such thing as race. Scientifically speaking, there is no such thing as race. These are categories that we have created and we've built them around these things such as, you know, how much melanin or lack thereof a person has in their skin. And based on these distinctions, we call these different races of people. Well, that's just nonsense. Scientifically, as well as theologically, that's nonsense. Um, we're all human beings. We're all made in the image of God. And what we ought to be striving for is, is not greater divide or division between us, but, but greater unity and finding that which we hold in common, which is our humanity. So um, one of the things that, um, that you said in, uh, in there was about where, where personhood is located and how our understanding of that has really migrated over time, been completely redefined. Um, if you haven't read it yet, let me encourage you to check out um, Carl Truman's book. Uh, we talked with him here, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and I feel like the end is like the road to the sexual revolution or something like that. It's a terrible title. It's a really good book. Um, and uh, and it one of the things that I appreciate about what you're doing right now and what you do uh, at the Colson Center is you help us think about what we're thinking about and how we're thinking about what we're thinking. Uh, most, uh, most people are, you know, if you ask them what they're thinking about, they're not thinking about what they're thinking about, and they're certainly not thinking about how they're thinking about what they're thinking about. Uh, right. But that's really what the Colson Fellows Program is designed to do. So I'd love for you to just um, share, share with folks who are listening right now about the Colson Fellows Program, um, because I'm betting there's a lot of people, Michael, that don't know about it. Yeah. Well, um, as you know, Chuck's passion was uh, equipping Christians to think Christianly about every aspect of life and reality, to, to move beyond this sort of privatized understanding of Christian faith and realize that, that Christianity is the public truth that stands above every other truth claim, and that our responsibility as Christians is to, is to press this truth into every aspect of life and reality, to, to in essence, um, restore that which has been broken by sin, ruined by sin, to set to right all that sin has set wrong. This is part of the duty and responsibility and role of the church in the, uh, in the hands and guidance of Jesus Christ. And um, if, if we look at our culture today, and, and most of us are, are rightly and deeply concerned about the state and direction of our culture, I, I, I would encourage people to stop for a moment and, and consider the fact that it's not a consequence of a secular occupation that explains our culture, but more accurately, probably the result of a Christian evacuation. Mm -hmm. um, and by evacuation, I mean from, from the commanding heights of culture, from, from the, the halls of, of thought. Uh, we stopped thinking. We, we, we retreated into this privatized faith, and we offered nothing to the world. And as a result, we rendered ourselves irrelevant, and we created a social cultural vacuum, uh, which, as we all know, does not, um, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And so other forces rush in, and they begin to reshape the world in a way that seems right to them, but in the end leads to death. And that's where we find ourselves. So the Colson Fellows Program is designed to bring people into a 10-month experience. It's a 10-month course, begins each August. Um, and take them on a deep dive into Christian worldview. And when we talk about Christian worldview, we don't teach Christian worldview as a polemic. In other words, we're not there to equip you with a set of arguments 
so you can go out and win debates and, and have the right answers in these uh, cultural social conflicts, but rather to teach you worldview as wisdom, as that's how the Bible describes it. And, and wisdom is not knowledge. It's not intelligence. It's this capacity, this ability to discern what is true and good and beautiful in everything, and then act on that knowledge as you bring your life in alignment with God's order, and you begin to reorder the world around you in the way that God has intended it to be ordered for the good of all and, and for the good of others. Yeah, it's just it's just awesome, um, and I genuinely appreciate uh, what you guys are doing at the Colson Center. Want our listeners to not only check out colsonfellows.org, but since you get to hear it every single day here on Mornings with Carmen, I want you to check out breakpoint.org. Sometimes you're listening and you hear the short version of the day's Breakpoint program. Other times, depending which hour you're listening, you hear. Um, the full long-form offering of Breakpoint. But we uh, we love what you guys are doing. We really appreciate uh, you sharing with us today, and we hope you'll come back. Carmen, I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, that's Michael Craven from the Colson Center. We'll be right back. When you think about winter, what comes to mind? So when you hear that word, um, you are hearing me say W-I-N-T-E-R. But if you're Jonathan Pitts or you are anyone in um, Tony Evans' family and you hear the word winter, you are hearing a person's name. Jonathan Pitts is joining me next. He's the author of My Winter Season, Seeing God's Faithfulness in the Shadow of Grief. Uh, He is also a pastor. He's a member of the larger Evans clan. Um, he has a um, he has a story to share to share, and it's a story that, um, in this particular season of winter, touches on the faith journey of us all. Jonathan Pitts is up next. We'll be right back. Respect. It's one of the most vital stones placed in the foundation of your home, and without respect, no relationship will be able to withstand the storms life will surely bring. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Think about your home right now. Is there a healthy sense of respect and esteem between family members? Well, consider this. When it comes to showing respect for others, your teen takes her cues from you. So when you've had a particularly bad day at work or you're frustrated with the kids at home, don't take it out on your spouse. Find other ways to vent that don't include wife bashing or husband bashing. When you love and respect your partner in marriage, you're teaching your children to do the same. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me now, Jonathan Pitts. I want you to bookmark uh, his website, jonathanpitts.net, and I want you to um, consider his uh, his story and his testimony today. Jonathan, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen. Good morning. How are you doing today? Hey, good morning. Well, I am well. I am well. I um um I I want to I want to do something that might be a little bit unusual. I want to go back to July twenty third, twenty eighteen. Can we do that? Okay. Can we start on July 23rd, 2018? 
um, you and your wife, Winter, were looking at uh, the final edited version of Emptied, which you were going to submit to the publisher. Um, If we were talking about that book today, if we were highlighting Emptied today, what would the content of our conversation be about? Yeah, uh, it'd be about uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2, which talks about Jesus emptying himself um, and basically how that is a model for us in marriage and a model for us and really a model for what Winter and I had in our marriage. And we were sharing our story about how we learned to empty ourselves of all that we had, all that we thought we were owed, all that we um, were full of in order to be filled up with Christ for one another. And um, yeah, it was a, it was a, obviously a whole different story and a whole different day, the 23rd. I've never had anybody ask me that. That's actually a really, uh, a really thoughtful question. Um, uh, for me and my family, um, you know, that, that date would have been, you know, what, what was the difference in May the 11th and May the 12th, 1984, because my 43-year-old dad was very much fully alive on May the 11th, and on May the 12th, he was, uh, he was not. Um, and so I have a sensitivity to, um, to this conversation, and I know how radically life changes, um, not just, uh, well, I, I still don't know how radically it changed for my mom, but I certainly know how radically it changed for me as a child. Um, talk with us about July the 24th, 2018. Yeah, well, just, just real quick, I mean, everything did change really drastically, really fast. I mean, on the 23rd, we were celebrating our new move to Nashville, Tennessee from Dallas. We were in Dallas. I was finishing up my last week of work. And so we went to sleep on the 23rd, exhausted from all of the move efforts, but really excited about our future. And we woke up the same way. I took a run that morning on the 24th. I took a three-mile run. I had this instinct to just pray for my girls. I talk about it in the book. And so I'm, I'm running in the dark through this country, uh, little suburb of, uh, of Dallas, and praying for my girls. Winter's in the bed sleeping. And um, uh, I just was excited for the future that God had. And so uh, anyway, I went through that day and um, went to work. It was my last week working for Dr. Tony Evans. So I was, the Tuesday of, uh, of the Friday would have been my last day. And I went into work like a sort of like a normal day, except I was saying goodbye to my coworkers. I was saying goodbye to everyone. And um, Winter was home that afternoon, hanging out with my sister-in-law, who had moved to Dallas with Winter's brother uh, two years before. And they were hanging out just to try to get as much time together as they could. So their daughters were there. And that afternoon, Winter told me, she said, hey, I feel sick. She sent me, I said, I feel the sick emoji in a text message. And so I came home thinking... Um, yeah, you know, maybe she was just wasn't feeling well in her stomach or something like that, which wasn't uncommon for winter. Um, anyway, I came home and she was laughing, hanging out with my sister-in-law. And um, one moment she was laughing, hanging out. I, I laid down and took a 15-minute nap just to kind of get rested because she was actually finishing up a book that she had to get done. And she told me when I got home that night, she said, you need to be on so I can get done. So I took like a 15-minute power nap, uh, got up, started to fix dinner for the girls, just some Costco ribs and Caesar salad, which I'll never eat again. And um, she went to lay down to take a quick nap. And when I went into the bedroom to check on, um, see if she wanted to eat the first time and she didn't want to eat, she said, said, I just need a few more minutes of rest. And then I went back into the bedroom to floss my teeth to get the Costco ribs out of my teeth. And I'd be in the bathroom, I'd look out and I would see um, Winter kind of slump over in the bed. I thought she was playing at first and then realized uh, really shortly after that she was having what I thought was a seizure, but was really a cardiac dysrhythmia. Her heart was off rhythm, and my life changed in that moment really, really quickly. Um, she would uh, – I'd spent about 20 minutes, 25 minutes trying to resuscitate her, waiting for um, the ambulance to get there. And she wasn't pronounced until we got to the hospital, but I believe that um, her soul left her body there at that um, at that house that we were staying at, a guest house. And um, – 
yeah, it was a massive change in my life. And, um, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, it's my three youngest daughters were there. My oldest daughter wasn't there. Thank God. Um, but obviously it was a massive day for me and I, I always believe even bigger for my girls. Um, yeah. so yeah. I'm talking with Jonathan Pitts. Uh, you guys now all, uh, your ears are, are perked and your hearts are sensitized. And now you want to know the name of the book for sure. My winter season, winter is spelled not with an I, but with a Y. My winter season, seeing God's faithfulness in the shadow of grief. Jonathan Pitts is the author. Um, Jonathan, um, uh, this is uh, this is a very intimate conversation um, about things that most people do not so freely talk about. Uh, and I'm, I guess I'm wondering, you know, you you went ahead and you moved, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, and you moved to, you know, to a community of people um, who knew not winter. And I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, a couple of years in, um, you know, what is life like for you and your four girls? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, you know, I've said it just, I just gave words to this um, recently, but, you know, I thought I was coming here um, to contribute to a team, to a church. I'm an executive pastor at a church. And so I thought I was coming for that. And I'm just type A enough just to be like, okay, this change happened. And now we're going to go take the world and prove to the world that we can make it and all that. Like, I, I wouldn't say that, but that's kind of inside. I felt like I had to be. Um, but what's interesting is that God moved us here before winter would pass away. Two weeks before she would pass away, we'd buy our house. Our girls would get into school. We'd do everything together two weeks before she passed away. But really, God was setting us up to come to an incubator of a town called Franklin, Tennessee. Um, it's a town that's uh, some of your listeners might know, but it's this beautiful little town. I think it was ranked like top 10 towns in the country by some magazine recently. But it's this beautiful little town full of faithful people, faithful Christian people, a lot of them here, um, a lot of them in kind of the um, entertainment industry a little bit. And anyway, God moved us here and we received, the people that received us, because I was coming in as a pastor and also I was coming in at some level, a known entity just with Winter's track record and the publishing and the family that we've kind of been a part of and the Evans family. But anyway, God moved us here and these people received us like we were family and the church received us like we were family and they've loved on us for two and a half years now in ways that I'll never be able to repay. And I, in every sense of the word, God brought us here to heal. And so we've been for two and a half years healing and God's been really kind in that. And there've been a lot of surprises in that, a lot of joys in that. Every one of us have built friendships with people we never thought possible. I at 40 years old or 38 when she died and 40 now, almost 41, have built lifelong friendships, you know, which is hard to do at middle age when you move. Um, so anyway, I just call myself middle age too. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, we, we all have friendships and God's been really kind to us here. And um, we live in a beautiful home and a beautiful town and, it's just really beautiful people. I couldn't be more grateful. I'm talking with Jonathan Pitts. He is an executive pastor at a church in Franklin, Tennessee. He's the author of My Winter Season, Seeing God's Faithfulness in the Shadow of Grief. You can find him at jonathanpitts.net, and he and I will be right back. Continue my conversation with Jonathan Pitts. We're talking about uh, his new book, My Winter Season, Seeing God's Faithfulness in the Shadow of Grief. And we're talking about life and reality and death as a part of that. Um, Jonathan, uh, you have a Carmen in your life. Tell us, I, uh, I know, tell us about uh, her role in your story. Yeah, I have a sister named Carmen, um, who's a wonderful human. And uh, the day of Winter's funeral, uh, Carmen lived in New Jersey 
And uh, she just came up to me at the funeral and she just said, Hey, John, I just want you to know, like, God told me, like, if, if you need me, I'm supposed to come and help you um, with the girls. And I was just bullish enough just to be like, you know what, Carm, I'm good. Thanks for the offer. We're going to be okay. And so I literally <laughs> turned down help for my sister who was single, never been married, um, no kids. And uh, so I, uh, I came to Nashville and about two weeks into us being here, I was in the kitchen. Um, I was cooking and my girls were downstairs and I, I burned a chicken in the oven and I'll just never forget being really, really frustrated and um, my girls laughing at me for burning this chicken. I'm not a bad cook, <laughs> but I was just like totally flustered and totally out of my uh, element just with all that was happening. And school hadn't started yet. My job hadn't started yet. And so I ran upstairs to my bedroom. I don't know if I ran, but I went upstairs to my bedroom. I just remember crying and just being like, I got to call her. And so I called Carmen. I just said, hey, Carmen, is that offer still on the table? And um, bottom line is two weeks later, Carmen had broker lease, sold her car gotten rid of most of her stuff and flew to Nashville with three, three suitcases. And now Carmen lives with me and my girls who used to call her aunt Cece just affectionately call her Cece now. And she stepped in as a surrogate. And, um, the reason I can leave my house this morning and be in my office doing this interview is because my sister's there helping me with my girls. And she's honestly, in many ways become like a helpmate to me. And that's not a term that many people would use to describe their sister, but she has stepped in and she's filled gaps for me and she's filled gaps for my girls. Ironically, uh, Carmen has her master's in counseling and, um, mm. it's just a really beautiful thing. How God works. She's become, um, a mother to the motherless in, in a lot of ways. Grateful for her. I, uh, I just, I love that part of this testimony. Um, and I, I, I mean, some of my motivation today, Jonathan, right, is to inspire people to think about the loss that they've experienced in their own lives. There's been a lot of loss in 2020, a lot of unexpected loss for a lot of people and a lot of families, uh, a lot of Christians listening right now who are wondering, you know, well, what could I do to help that new, um, that new dad, you know, that dad who did not expect to be raising his kids by himself or that mom who didn't expect to be raising her kids by herself. Um, and the, um, the, the way in which God has supplied um, and demonstrated his faithfulness, it, the way that you share it in this, um, in this book, in, in, in my winter season, um, I, I hope will be an inspiration to others, uh, not only, you know, to provide a real salve for what's going on in their own lives, but also to consider, um, you know, how God might be sending them as a faithful agent of his grace into the life of someone who is newly grieving and, and walking in the valley of the shadow. So um, maybe just talk with, talk with Christians who are listening right now about the real power that they do possess to bless their pastor or bless their neighbor or bless their brother or bless their friend or bless, bless their colleague um, who is walking right now in the shadow of grief. Yeah, it's really um, it's really beautiful. If, if, if there's a theme to the book, it's Psalm thirty four seven, which the, is the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and He rescues them. And I would say my story is one of which um, I just saw, sensed God's rescue. And God doesn't rescue through like super spiritual, ethereal kind of things. He rescues through His people most often. And uh, that's been my experience: is God sending people, like people I know and people I don't know, people I love, um, people that didn't know me from Adam, but knew winter, like so many different kinds of people that would come to our aid and bless us in ways that we wouldn't ever be able to repay, nor would we, we wouldn't even see it coming. And I would just say like, 
that is who you can be. Like you can be the angel of the Lord to those around you. And all it takes is a little bit of compassion and a little bit of insight. And it's interesting because now like I have so much more um, compassion and empathy than I had before. Not that I didn't have any before, but I think I see things I didn't see before. Even just recently, a neighbor of ours, um, one of their sons who I I didn't know the parents, um, but my girls knew their son because they played the neighborhood together. Um, But he uh, got cancer and uh, it was a one year battle with cancer and a little over a year and he finally passed away. And just the desire to want to be Jesus's hands and feet to that family in ways that we can. Like even last night, it's been a a little over a month now and my sister prepared a meal for that family. And so what I would say is like whatever resource and whatever gifting God has given you um, to use on behalf of his people, just use it. It's not probably going to ever be something more than you can give or more than you can be. Like my sister just gave what she could. She gave her life, which is massive. It's huge. And it makes me really emotional when I think about it. But God's not asking all of us for that. He's just asking us to give what we can, you know? And so like, she's giving me her life, but now she just made a meal for another family. And God just, that's what he does. He blesses us to bless others. He gifts us to gift others, gift others. And I'm grateful to have seen that and tasted that. And um, I don't know, it's just, it's a, it's a beauty of the kingdom of God that we get to participate in and be a part of. And sometimes we'll be recipients of it. And other times we'll be um, those that give it away. But if we're in the kingdom, then we should be doing both all the time. So in the very um, final chapter of uh, My Winter Season, Jonathan shares about winter's promise. Um, and Jonathan, you take us to a point in time, 14 months after her death, when you're sitting at your desk, uh, she's very much on your mind and a heaviness sweeps over you. You're missing her, you know, something fierce. Talk a little bit about um, just the reality of, because that is the reality. I mean, I my dad died a long time ago now. Um, but there are still those moments and places and spaces where the grief sweeps over me. Just talk about that. Yeah, it's totally unexpected. It's uh, it's really interesting. Even like today on a day that's like a, a book launch day, I wake up and, um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen today in terms of the book. And I realize anew that my wife is not here and mm-hmm. I'm releasing some book about the woman I loved, who was my wife for 15 years and 27 days, who isn't here, and a fresh wave of grief. It's not as heavy for me now as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just like this emptiness, this hollowness that just exists. Um, and it comes unexpected. And um, it often comes like you, you always think that you're at the last wave of it. You're always like, oh, I guess that was it. And it just keeps resurfacing. It keeps coming back. And um I don't know. It's just there. It's empty. It's hollow. And the only thing I know to do at this point is just to fill it with the thing that the only thing I know I can fill it with that has any level of um, benefit, which is God's word, worship, just being near to God when I can't draw near to the person that I'm, I'm missing. And so, yeah, it's, it comes often, you know, my girls, it's all different for all of us. My girls, it's mm-hmm. different. It's around the holidays for my girls, for, for at least a couple of them. And for me, the holidays aren't so bad because like, oftentimes on holidays I'm prepared and I, I actually will do things to memorialize. But it's, it's really on days when probably for me when I'm the most um, – lonely where it, where it surfaces. Yeah. Yeah. Can we pray for you um, on this book launch day? I would love that. Mm. Father, we thank you so much for our brother, Jonathan. Uh, we thank you that you are the spirit that animates his life. We thank you for the good gift of winter that you gave him um, for, for a lifetime of love and sweet fellowship. Um, we thank you for the sacred trust of his four girls We thank you for um, his shepherding spirit, and we ask, Father, today um, that your angel, the very angel of the Lord, would encamp around him, um, that you would bless him as he uh, talks about this book on this day, but more importantly, Father, as he talks about uh, Sweet Winter. 
We thank you for uh, this sweet fellowship we've enjoyed together and ask your blessing upon him today as he moves forward in conversations with others about who you are and your great faithfulness. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to talk together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Carmen. Absolutely. Blessings. Blessings. That's Jonathan Pitts. You can find him at jonathanpitts.net. The book is My Winter Season, winter spelled with a Y, uh, Seeing God's Faithfulness in the Shadow of Grief. We'll be right back. So my guess is that that conversation with Jonathan Pitts um, required uh, more than one tissue. It certainly did here in my studio. Um, Thank you to those of you who are listening who texted in during that conversation, just your uh, appreciation for Jonathan and his willingness to tell his story. Um, Listener Jane uh, shared that she and her husband are actually spending time right now with an uncle who's grieving the loss of his wife who died just a month ago. Uh, My guess is you are walking in a season uh, of grief with someone right now, that this is their winter season, and I just... um, I just want you to be reminded that God is good and you are his. God is good and you are his. Um, The valley of the shadow of death uh, is real. And we walk with people into the valley of the shadow of death sometimes. um, And then we leave a beloved there at the other end of the valley. And then we have to walk back out. And that walking back out process, um, you know, the good shepherd is certainly with us. Uh, he is certainly carries us when necessary, but the reality is, I mean, you got to walk back out of the valley of the shadow, um, and it's hard and it's long, and and there are um, times when, you know, the shadow passes back over, and you sort of return anew to those um, experiences of grief. So that's real, uh, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And I hope that that is what you heard in uh, in the testimony of Jonathan Pitts. He does not grieve as one who has no hope. He actually grieves as one who has great hope, great hope. In the dedication to the book, um, he says to Winter, I'll see you soon. Um, let's be the people who live in such a way um, with those around us who they know that when we pass from this life, um, they're going to see us soon because we both belong, heart, mind, body, soul, uh, for all eternity to the Lord our God. God has done everything necessary for your salvation. And if you have not had that conversation with him, today's the day that you need to do that because literally God only knows what tomorrow holds and what tomorrow will bring. So let let today be the day um, that you turn to the Father and say, you know, I want to live with you forever. And I know that the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ. And so I accept your free gift of grace in him. We have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.